Hello, everybody. Today we are with Sarfaraz Kazi. Sarfaraz is the co-founder and CTO of HivePro. Hello, Sarfaraz. How are you? Hey, glad I'm good. Hey, Simon. Sarfaraz, I think that uh, we've just talked about it just a minute ago about the fact that we don't know each other yet. You know Simon very well, but you know it would be great both for me and for our listeners. If you could introduce yourself a little bit, tell about a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Uh, personally, proud father of two, uh, shuttle between uh, Dubai and US, uh, started this crazy company in, in middle of uh, super turmoil times. Uh, background is essentially from cybersecurity, um, have close to 22 years of experience in the industry. Uh, last uh, 11 years, hardcore cybersecurity, uh, you know, uh, worked with in, in my previous company, worked with around 3000 plus enterprise customers, grew the business to $100 million, uh, close to that in revenue, and then uh, found a problem worth solving, right? And that's what my current startup is all about, you know? Um, yeah, uh, that's very, very high level about me. Question already uh, regarding your, you know, your background and the implications it has on uh you know your career now as a, a startup founder and it's very rare for people to have as much experience as you do as an entrepreneur prior to uh, launching a, a startup um, i wonder if is it a startup born out of uh, inspiration or is it one that's you know much more driven by data because of you know your understanding of the market and, and the years of research and and effort uh, you've done um, at least in, in the middle east yeah, how, so, did, uh, how did you start, basically? Yeah, um, the current venture, right? So in, in my previous company, uh, the idea was identifying leading and bleeding edge technologies emanating out of US and accelerating their time to market in the region. In last 10 years, worked with 40 plus cybersecurity companies, a lot of them in early stage. And what I realized was uh, working with customers is, uh, you know, a, a technology uh, at the end of the day, it's a binary thing, right? They either succeed or they fail. And if you were to dissect all the data points and realize like what makes a company succeed or what makes a company fail, the core comes down to the problem you're solving, right? If you're solving a problem big enough, which resonates with a large set of customers, there are very good chances that you'll succeed. Obviously there are other aspects to it, like how the, the leadership team, uh, you know, the stability of the product and the whole nine yards. But that the core, if you were to dissect, it's are you solving a problem, right? Which a customer has. And that's the thing with our company that we realized, right? Um, and so we were at a very in interesting juncture when we uh, looked at the problem that we were um, solving. We had literally two options. One was identify a very early stage startup in US and work with them while they mature the product or uh, working with different startups, getting their experience and saying, hey, you know, you could have a go at solving this problem, right? And we figured out it would be much more fun to do it ourselves because, uh, you know, seeing uh, up close and personal a lot of companies um, you know succeed and more importantly fail you learn from them and you want to avoid um, those costly mistakes which could lead to failure right and so that's how um, fundamentally the genesis of hypro really started and is there a specific way for um, you know startup companies 
entrepreneurs to learn about other people's mistakes in order to avoid them. My question is whether you had to do this journey only by, uh, you know, uh, learning on the flight or whether you actually, you could take some courses, uh, courses, uh, speak with people. What did you do in order to avoid other people's mistakes? A bit of everything. I mean, I, I have done like a, a one day uh, crash course by Professor Stanford in terms of like startups, right? Like what is the most important thing? Obviously, financial management, right? I mean, you've got great ideas, but you know, you got great tech people, you got great sales people, but most people fail because, you know, they run out of cash very quickly, right? So, so it's important to understand the importance of cash, right? It's important to understand um, leadership it's important to understand market fit right there's so many variables right people think have an idea create a product sell and create a company and get an exit wish it was so simple but it's anything but that right there's so many it's not it's it's absolutely Shit. not <laughs> and th there's so many data points you know you are always a product of every decision that you make right and so uh, while I, I, I can claim to read many books or, um, you know, uh, uh, attend courses and stuff, but the most profound experience I had was talking to founders, right? Uh, people who succeeded and more importantly, people who failed. It's, it's very interesting what people don't realize, the power of communication. You know, you could reach out to people and say, hey, you know, how was your journey? What is one thing you could do differently? And so many wise things come, you know, people in hindsight, ask anybody who had a successful or a failed um, venture, they will tell you, this is something I could have done differently. And more often than not, you find yourself in a situation wherein you have to take, to take that call, right? And so uh, those are the best things that I think so I've learned. It's uh, talk to people, nothing prepares you like experience. Now, I want to make a very sharp turn now with, with my next question. You and I both live in the Middle East. I live in Israel, yeah. you live in Dubai, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, much of your business is, all, is also in the Middle East? Um, uh, primarily, yes. We are a US registered company, but owing to our uh, customer relationship, Prima Facie, uh, yes. So I wanted to ask about the main differences between the markets, if you could, you know, draw the, the rough lines of the, the differences, because up until now, at least on Shot of Cyber, uh, our guests were, you know, people that uh, either live or, or do business or just work in Europe, in the US, uh, Israel. But now we're focusing on, you know, someone that has much better familiarity with a market that not, not everybody knows. Um, Middle East is a very uh underrated and underestimated market in my opinion i mean uh, you know uh, obviously uh, you know there are a lot of markets right you take apac you take africa you take middle east um, and if you kind of leave us and europe out and every market is very different ask an european about american market yeah, it will be very different ask a texan versus somebody in california the markets are very different right it's the same thing in middle east middle east is not a single market right it's kind of divided primarily into, uh, I would say it's MENA region, Middle East, North Africa, right? And then you would dissect into what we call as GCC and non-GCC. So GCC, and I'm giving you a one-on-one crash course. In, That's good for, for everyone case. listening. That's great, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you have GCC. GCC is fundamentally uh, Gulf Cooperation co uh, Council countries, which is Saudi, UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, right? So this is GCC countries. And then non-GCC countries would be 
like Egypt, Lebanon, Iraq, you know, Turkey, yeah, and then North African uh, other countries, right? Arabic-speaking North African countries, right? So, but primarily, when you look at most customers who do business in GCs uh, in 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 the MENA region or in Middle East region, the bulk of the business would come from uh, the GCC countries, right? And again, you were to divide a market into two areas, right? So you have the B2B, like people who sell to enterprise, and then you have B2C. So for example, for B2C, something like Egypt would be more lucrative because simply the people population is much higher. Uh, and it's it's kind of funny when you look at Middle East, uh, most people don't talk about the Israeli market, right? Because Israeli is more associated with the U- uh, European yep. market, you know? And so I would love to have, <laughs> like when you talk about Middle East, have Israel as part of, the Middle East yep. story, but you know, fortunately, it's great uh, with um, you know uh, now with the Abraham Accord, you know, UAE, uh, Bahrain, um, uh, you know, um, we have recognized Israel, and we are seeing uh, more uh, business in the region, and you know, it's 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 kind of good to see uh, a higher level of cooperation, you know. And this was actually my my follow up question for the listeners that are not aware of this so more than a year ago uh, or two years ago was it yeah it was during the president more than two yeah exactly so the abraham accords were signed so israel is now having diplomatic relations with the the uae and many other muslim and arab countries and for the business in israel course for the high-tech and cyber this was a, a great uh, great success hearing about this news uh, so what are the main like differences you are seeing as you know as a company in this region like what are the main differences you are seeing in your day-to-day basis is it like a new market that was open for you or you have new collaboration opportunities like how does it look from your uh, perspective so th- there are multiple dimensions. It's a very complex relationship, right? So if you look at uh, the Abraham Accords, it was primarily signed uh, between uh, UAE, Bahrain, and I think so. There's one more country. I think Morocco Egypt. as well. Yeah, uh, Morocco. Uh, yep. So, like I said, there are six countries in GCC, and so countries like Saudi and Oman or Qatar have still not signed it, right? So they officially do not r- recognize Israel, right? Um, and, and so uh, in UAE, we have seen more of a flux, but here's an interesting thing, right? Israeli companies in cybersecurity, A, you cannot ignore, and B, they've always been existent, uh, existed, right? So a lot of Israeli companies who have done innovation basically went on to establish headquarters in US. And from there, they've done business. So it's not something like an alien concept wherein you know Israeli companies were not known, right? So Checkpoint already yep. existed. The new breed of companies like uh, Cyber Reason, Sentinel One, um, off very late, uh, lo- like a lot of threat intelligence companies, uh, companies like Exonius, right? You know, uh, they've been there, um, you know, so they've been doing business, uh, obviously under the American name. Now it's more direct, you know, you could directly take a flight from Israel and come down. Uh, and, and there is a, a deeper level of cooperation, right? I mean, um, and more so in UAE because uh, there is uh, more of a, an emphasis at a, from a top level, from a leadership level to drive the cooperation. And, uh, you know, these technologies actually have made a positive impact, right? There are humans across the world, people uh, who want to uh, help, who want to make a positive impact, and they exist everywhere. Most countries in, in, in the GCC where, where I've done business, I was always warned that business would be slow, people are very conservative, et cetera, et cetera. But people are taking more risks on innovation, I feel. Major 
enterprises, major government agencies take a chance on new technology because they they don't want to miss out on something that could potentially, you know, accelerate their 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 development. And uh, I don't think that's something most people know. At the same time, they also very early understood the idea of digital sovereignty much more than most <laughs> European countries. You know, you have these so-called more developed countries who are not concerned, whether in the mainstream or, or people in high positions of power are not concerned about digital sovereignty. Uh, you know, what, what's your view on that? How early do you, did you see that, that concept appear? Uh, I mean, uh, again, it, it's a perception management challenge, right? If you look at uh, UAE, right? UAE has always been in... So if you look at UAE's uh, drive from leadership, it is always about being at the leading and uh, leading edge of stuff, right? Like even if you look at the way they are adopting technology, technologies like blockchain, right? Uh, you have somebody very senior uh, heading cybersecurity at a national level. And then, you know, you have regulations in place for things like cryptocurrency. So, so the mandate is right from the top with the new generation of leadership coming in there's a mandate i mean the mm. biggest impact and change i've seen is in saudi arabia i don't know what was the number but every year thousands of people go to us go to europe go to australia for studies they are coming yeah. back in the country and they're make, driving the change these are normal people believe in transforming the country right so one of the key drivers what uh, uh, probably you're seeing in a lot of countries uae has this vision 2071 right saudi has vision 2030 right qatar has this uh, thing with where they, when they talk about creating legacy right and so what is very interesting at a very macro level is they want to transform from an oil-based economy to a knowledge-based economy Right. And there is a huge investment like UAE last year had this thing when they wanted to develop a million coders, like a lot of startup incubator labs are coming up. I was meeting with a couple of founders the other day and, you know, UAE is strongly encouraging people to make an investment. It's very interesting. I met somebody at a, at a senior leadership. He made a very interesting comment in UAE. He was like, we have the vision, we have the money, uh, there's brains in Israel and then there is people in India, right? And our vision is how do we get that together? Take example of Saudi, right? I mean, one of my friends, uh, he is uh, one of those pioneers in the Saudi cybersecurity startup scene. And most people would think Saudi guys would sit on a chair and buy products. No, they are making their own products now. You know, in, in Saudi, there is, they are encouraging if Saudi made products are there, they will get precedence over non-Saudi made products, right? So there's a conscious effort from the leadership, from the establishment to promote ideation. You, you think about what differentiates US and Israel from everybody else. It's that whole concept of ideation, right? Startup nation. Uh, and, and that's what they're trying here. So we are in very interesting times in, in this part of the world wherein uh, you're seeing that metamorphosis happening and you, you cannot see it overnight, right? It takes years, but you can see the, that going in the right steps. What I think would surprise most people as well traveling in this region and working in cybersecurity is how young people are in positions of leadership. It's, it's, it's surprising. I mean, you meet people in their 30s, 40s with a lot of responsibility in government, in, in large enterprises. You also see probably more women than in any other region I've worked in, uh, in cyber. Phenomenal. It's really surprising, yeah. 10 years back, first time I go to Saudi, I think it was 2011 or 12. I go to Saudi and I was going on the street and I figured out something is not adding up, right? That something is missing. You see all the people on the street, you go to meetings, everything is there. And it took me two or three visits to realize, like I never saw any woman on the street or in meetings. 
it doesn't immediately strikes you, right? And now, I had that experience when, in Chad as well. It's, it's something yeah. just doesn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. And now when I went there, I went to this bakery, which was run by all women. And, and then this cybersecurity meeting, very smart, like uh, one of my customers, you know, one of the smartest ladies I met in Saudi in Riyadh, like a majority of team were women driven. I mean, in, 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 in the region, they have this thing called women in cybersecurity Middle East. I don't know if you heard about it. Um, Dr. Rimal Shamari is one of the key um, drivers of it. But you, you are seeing that and it makes you happy, right? Like seeing a conscious effort uh, for empowerment and you know seeing the drivers of changes. When we spoke a couple of weeks ago, I attended the B-Sides conference in Tel Aviv University. I, I think most of the uh, presenters I've seen there were bright, sophisticated, and, and very professional uh, women from the local cybersecurity industry, and, and presenters that, that came here from different countries, I think. Very happy to see that so many women researchers from cybersecurity lecturing there. So here's a fact I wanted to share, and I take immense pride in it. Our CRO, our chief legal officer, our head of engineering, our head of HR, they're all women. Even the head of trade research right now is a woman. So mo most of the people you've recruited in positions of leadership are living in the Middle East. Is that is that still the case? Because your company uh, is incorporated in the US. Yeah. So was it ever incorporated there and then you moved headquarters or? No. So the idea was before COVID, I, uh, we were supposed to move there. And like I said, I, I keep on transiting by this year and I'll move to US. But uh, we are trying to uh, move our leadership uh, team to the US. We are hiring in US. Um, as of moment, we are scouting somebody to run the US operation who will help us set up the next level of leadership to drive it from the US. But to develop the product, and if you look at some of the people who are required to run, like like Luna, who's our chief legal officer, she's South African. We have people from different nationalities, uh, few of them Indians, uh, you know. Like our development center is in Greece. Currently, the leadership team sits here. We are diversifying. And you should not care what gender, what ethnicity, what race they come from. If, if there is a good best person for the job, just hire them and it will be surprised how much diversity you can create. If you if you are very conscious, then what ends up happening is you're hiring for compliance and then you could show you have those roles, but somebody else is doing the job. And I'm sorry, but I don't believe in it. Obviously, um, having your headquarters in the US is, is, is great because it gives you access to, you know, a bigger market, a bigger market for employment as well. What do you think some countries in, in, in the GCC and, and let's take the UAE as an example, need to do to be competitive as a place where startups would feel like it's the right place to incubate uh, at the very least for their for their first years. We understand Israeli companies as well move to the US at some point, but how could they retain these companies longer and encourage new ones to to build there? Startup Nation is a very good example, right? Like how Israel did it. I mean, you could uh, you you have to challenge the norm, right? Just because something does not exist does not mean it cannot exist. If you believe you are doing the right thing, you have to keep on pushing doing it, you will see success. It's very interesting just because people don't try, they don't know if things will work or not. And that's why you, some people are thought leaders because they thought of something which nobody else did. And that's why they succeed. Does, does it mean they'll succeed always? Probably not. The chances of failure are uh, more, right? But stick to the fundamentals, do the right things and the chances of success increases, right? And it's it's a step by step thing, right? I mean, the more uh, you succeed with time, the less chances of failure it has, right? So, uh, but the key is what kind of support do you have? 
the whole thing about this ideation right what kind of people are you you're surrounded with if, if there's an ecosystem uh, there's a support from the establishment right if there's support from like minded people who want to make a difference right the companies which succeed are the one who want to make a difference right everybody makes money at the end of the day but if you start a company to make money then probably chances of success are a bit less right you 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 want to make money make no mistake but you 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 start a company to make a difference right so so those are key things which are very important i i see so many youngsters right i was part of this cohort uh, with um, with startups and everybody has this thing we want to start a company because we want to experience startup that's not a reason you start a company you want to start because you see a problem worth enough solving and that's so important that's why that so that ecosystem of people who think right they think that they can make a difference that's a big thing you see a difference in the valley every second person has a very clear idea of how they want to impact the world and then that's so important from a thought process you were already a very experienced go to marketer i don't know if that's the right terminology but uh, you know you took lots of companies to market you clearly understand what it takes to you know take a pitch and turn that into revenue i think it's a huge competitive advantage as you build a business now but do you feel like sometimes you know it takes a madman to invent and it takes a lot of naivete when when you're building a new company to explore areas to really innovate and do you feel that sometimes you you're almost too good at projecting the marketability of something that you you for forbid yourself from trying certain ideas yeah i mean uh, one thing which for, for me a personal driver was always trying not to set into comfort zone you do the same thing repeatable so here here's a thing right when there's a lot of chaos right the way you make order is you you pick up strands you create a repeatable model and then you get people to follow it and then you take yourself out and you created a process right when none existed and then you become redundant the only thing you do is you make a lot of money by creating that process but then it does not intellectually stimulates you and what you want to do is then do something find a very chaotic environment create a model which makes sense right and that's what i i did right i mean i could have been doing what i'm doing like Uh, the companies at a certain revenue take it to the next level but you know honestly there's a team which does that and it does not intellectually stimulates me uh, what i wanted to do was try something which i have not done before challenge myself and the kind of learning has been just phenomenal right i mean it, and even when i say it's phenomenal it's an understatement because every day i learn something you know what doesn't kills you makes you stronger you know one of the very interesting things that i want to learn more from you is is you know the difference of thought we've mentioned diversity before and i truly believe intentional or not the the spectrum of thought that you get from people from different places cultures whatever is truly amazing and i truly uh, experience it every day in my workplace i want to understand also from an entrepreneur point of view you visit a lot at the silicon valley do you see like very distinct differences between the way of thought of entrepreneurs or just people with ideas that haven't tried their their luck yet in the UAE and the US for example or in Europe uh, you look at a, a startup in a place like Illinois versus in Texas versus in Boston or Massachusetts versus in California they they are super different in the way they do when it comes to specifically if you talk talk about US versus UAE in UAE or in Saudi and I say I keep on saying Saudi because Saudi is an equally important market if not the most important market in the 
region there is this new breed of people who are walking or treading the unknown you go to us every second person you meet there's an existing ecosystem and that's the same thing you see in israel you have people at different stages some are at very early stage some have done exits and they support each other the key is the ecosystem of support that you get and that's mm-hmm. super phenomenal mm-hmm. in us if i were to just sit in uae and try to get that support ecosystem it is not so easy mm-hmm. in us if i would go i could get five people to solve a problem to me in one day yep. for in uae it would take me five days to get one person and that also if i'm lucky right so obviously because and the reason is because people are just starting with this product startup i mean there have been if you take like financial company trading company there are a lot of people who do that another interesting thing is and us has adopted this is the culture of communicate and collaborate versus command and control a lot of time uh, legacy companies have this command and control approach which does not necessarily work in a disruptive environment like startup so how do you communicate and collaborate how do you see people not as competition you have to unlearn what you learned when you start in a lot of companies you're like this is my competition i should not talk to him or this is my division i should not it's you versus them when you go to valley it's not you're not against anybody you all want to help each other and this the same thing in israel right like people are helping each other and that's a cultural shift so does it mean that for entrepreneurs in the uae for now and saudi arabia for example does it mean they have to be a bit braver maybe or determined when they when they start because they don't have this ecosystem or at least not as big as it is in the silicon valley or tel aviv i would not go into say it does not ex- it does exist i mean you see the support from the leadership so that transformation is happening but it's in very infancy stage it's in early mm-hmm. stage a lot of people do not freely get the support they would want as they would get in us or versus israel like if you had to say how many companies i'm t- and i'm talking about b2b right so that there are a lot of uh, unicorns who have come out of uae in saudi and b2b but like how many series a were raised in uh, middle eastern company how many companies are in series b how many series c right very less not even handful versus how you compare like the number of unicorns which came out of saudi uh, sorry uh, which came out of israel was just phenomenal right because yeah that system exists Exactly. And 2021 and 2020 were significantly uh, a huge unicorn years. Thanks. It's, it's very interesting. And actually the first time I ever speak about it uh, with someone, a, a different perspective again. Just because it does not exist does not mean it will not exist. It will, it will happen in future. But it's just these people who are embarking now are the new gen, the first generation who are going to create those uh, unicorns. And I'm hopeful they will. We don't know the future. I think the future should be bright looking at people, first of all, like yourself, an, inter- an entrepreneur from the region. And uh, second of all, hearing from you the shift that the uh, nations are making, such as, you know, Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, it is very surprising uh, for me to hear that and in, in a very positive way. So I think there's uh, much room for optimism here. Absolutely. Yeah, what's surprising is the number of people who, who go out, um, get an education in, in other parts of the world, learn from new cultures and come back to do business. Yeah, uh, a lot of countries suffer from a brain drain and I don't feel like there's the same problem in the Middle East. People are so, always coming back eventually to, to build something. Well, yes and no. A lot of people and the grassroots level starts at education, right? Like the kind of exposure you get to Western education is, is just phenomenal, right? So a lot of people I've seen who go on to work in Google and companies which exist in US, right? Only now those tech companies have started Uh, establishing in last five to seven years or last five to ten years right 
And so when the opportunity did not exist, obviously the best of talent would still reside in US. But the whole thing about startup ecosystem, right? Because if you want to do a job, honestly, right? You want to work in US with the best talent or you want to work here, probably you would. And again, it's more of a personal choice, but you would prefer US. But if you had a choice that my country is giving me an option of starting something in my country and I could be the flag bearer, or the chain driver, you would select it. And that is what is pulling back quite a few people, the best of uh, brains back. Some of those countries have started implementing regulations to encourage or, or make it compulsory to register a business locally to, to actually engage with the market. Do, are, are you seeing the benefits of that? Is that is that working? It is in a way, in my opinion, required. And, and the reason is very simple, right? So a lot of people would register somewhere else, come to business, take money out, and you're not giving anything back to the government. What you want to do is when you do business, you want to invest back in the country right and that's what these countries are doing they're saying hey you know you want to do business come and help us grow right just don't take the money out and so obviously it helps right like i like when somebody comes and says we want to establish a base in middle east and i say you know everybody starts in uae but now there's an option you can start in saudi for example right because that's where maybe uh, you might get your first million dollar faster right uae is always there but you know, so, so those kind of things are an option. Earlier, it was very difficult to even have an establishment in Saudi. So now that's a viable option wherein, and eventually you you uh, you establish an entity to do business, right? And if, if there's business, why not, you know, go there rather than do somewhere else? I mean, it's probably one of the regions where I've seen and where I've heard from, from decision makers and CISOs in particular is that they've suffered from predatory behaviors from startups coming from the US, from Europe, just consider Considering the Middle East as, you know, a cash cow for the very short term, helping them claim that they're global, collect as much money as possible and just, you know, leave their users, their their customers in the dust. I mean, I, I've seen more of that than anywhere else. So people are getting yeah, a bit so more careful. Off late, there's a lot of snake oil, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of companies who have features sell products, wherein they are not products, they are features. Half of the time, those products are half-baked. Uh, they're not enterprise ready and they end up selling and then they end up supporting. Do those things happen? Absolutely, yes. And especially when you consume an enterprise product, it's important from a support, right? The, the way uh, business happens is the sales guy's KPI is to sell, not to support. And so you can't blame him for selling company, something and the company is not supporting, Yeah. right? So you need to have an, uh, and you're in, in sales, you're as good as your last quarter. Right? Very true. So yep. <laughs> what do you do? You can't blame the sales guy because he was hired to sell. He was not hired to support the customer. And so, and why would a company, a startup invest in support, right? Unless they see traction. So they, they have to be forced to do that, right? They, they would see business and they need to grow. So again, um, so one of the things that I've seen in the past, and I'm not saying in the, as of now, was Middle East was always a bonus market. What a bonus market means is if I get any revenue, good. Otherwise, I don't care, right? So it was never in the radar of the management to say, hey, uh, you know, uh, we, we have to support customers over here, right? Because even if you see from a VC's perspective, they will always ask you, like, what's your revenue from North America? They will never ask you, what's your revenue from Middle East? If you look not at yet. The, yeah, yeah. But the right? game is changing. The game is changing. I mean, but 
I mean, and, and we are seeing that with a lot of uh, companies which are backed by soft uh, banks vision fund, you know, which is uh, yep. invested by PIF. There's a mandate to establish in, I've seen a couple of very large companies who got major funding from soft bank were told to establish in Saudi, right? So the mandate is coming. But but again, the, the point is think from those startups perspective, they necessarily do not have a motivation or incentive to set up a support center. So so it's, it's kind of a vicious circle and that's why customers are right to say, hey, protect me and then uh, companies need to decide whether they want to do business. This is not a bonus market anymore. No, it's, it's definitely changing. I was just remembering a book that someone in HR years ago made me read when I joined a, a, a company, a US-based company. It was called What Got You Here Won't Take You There. It, it sounded very silly at the time I read it. Yeah. It was very cliche to me. Marshall and, uh, but I don't remember the author, but I, I just yeah. remember this concept of what, what yeah. got you what here won't you, take uh, you there. Yeah. It's I'm just a good, a good I'm lesson. I'm going to Google it right now. I don't even think I read the whole book. I just uh, It felt like an assignment given by HR, but uh, I was uh, promoted to a more of a manager. Marshall and they said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll probably dust it off and, and read it. But, you know, it, it, it takes uh, very different uh, um, uh, skills, visions, capacity to execute, to take a startup from one to five, five to 20, 20 and beyond. Uh, you've taken lots of companies to market in the Middle East, companies that we wouldn't call them startups anymore, because when they start talking to you, they're probably, I don't know, over 10 million maybe, and they're starting to explore global markets. My question is not necessarily around what they did going to market in the Middle East, but you've probably worked with 40, 100 of such companies in these situations. What are the common mistakes you've seen them make uh, as they scale beyond that point? Where do you see did you see patterns in between the ways some of these companies failed? I, I always like to think that at this stage, they start spending more on marketing and sales than on developing their product. And that's usually what's catching them up. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? So two or three things. The fundamental, the most important thing, I think so, is the market fit, right? Like, uh, So one of the things in Middle East is uh, data residency, right? So if you're a cloud native, you could be the best of company. Now I could quote a couple of them, which I don't want to name, right? $2 billion plus valuation, right? But cannot sell because data residency is a problem, right? So do you have the right product fit? Can you actually sell, sell in the market, right? But working with companies that I've seen, the biggest difference between success and failure is how the top leadership saw the market. I'll, I'll give an example and I'll, I'll, I'll not name there were two companies, company A and company B, right? Both currently have close to a billion dollar valuation. I went to both those companies at the same time. I think so it was in 2016-17. And I said, I, and I both got those companies $200,000 first order within three months. Company A decided to invest in a local resource, right? Their revenue has grown to close to eight to ten million dollars annually. And they have a team of six, seven people. Middle East is one of very prominent market for them. Company B took the order for two years. They did not invest in Middle East. They were like, oh, you know, you sell. And then they were not supporting. There were other people who invested. Right. And there, as of today, I mean, I think so one or two years back, they hired somebody. Uh, I think so only last year they crossed a million dollar in revenue annual revenue so you can see right it's uh, basically you know it's what you invest right if you invest you get the right people customers will buy but if you take the market to be a bonus market you don't want to invest you're waiting for the orders things are not going to work the second thing with a lot of companies they're impatient they think we go we go for a meeting we'll get an order does not works like that you need to prove your technology you need to do proof of concept 
right? Customers need to see your alternate. If you say that my technology is worth half a million dollar and if your competition is giving for $100,000, customer will buy the $100,000. You you cannot say just because I am vendor A, I need half a million dollar, right? So, so there are a few things wherein you need to respect the customer. If you don't respect the customer, you will fail. But to your, to your point, what got you here and what will not get you there, right? The whole essence of it, and there's a lot of things. The most important thing is to let it go. The, the biggest problem with successful people is they don't learn to let it go. You mean reinventing themselves? They... No, like you, you want to keep everything to yourself. If you want to grow, if you have eight hours a day and you're doing the same task, if you don't let it go, you'll not find free time to do something else, right? If you're managing eight people and you want to manage 80 people, you have to let go of those eight people, right? And hire five people who can manage those uh, 80 people, right? So the Marshall Goldsmith, I, I, I saw him live and that was the most profound thing I learned from him. The biggest problem with successful people is they don't let it go, right? If I am the CEO, I'm so stuck about my company that I won't let my company go. How do you delink the founder from the management, right? It's my product. It's my thing. I can't let it go. And you hold on to it. You hold on too long and the market moves on. So yeah, many great quotes from you today. So for us, I think we'll have to, to pick the top 10 in order to promote <laughs> the episode later. Uh, I'm so sorry. I, 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 no, I, it's, it's great. Not to be sorry. I'm so uh, such a strong believer like of this fact to learn to let it go. Like a lot of people ask me, right? Like one thing that successful people, the best of people they learn. And that's what Marshall Goldsmith teaches. Teaches people to learn to let it go. It's one of the hardest things to do, to delegate, especially if you're delegating something you feel you're good at. You don't accept, but you don't let others, you know, level up or you don't let others grow and, and, and actually help you. You're doing yourself a disservice. That, that, that's, that, that answers your question, like, why did I change, right? Because I learned to let it go long back. And I was like, you know, if I would not have let it go, I would still be what I was doing. Not, not that I'm super successful, I'm not. By any stretch of imagination, I'm still a hustler. I'm still trying to cut it, um, you know, but something I, I try to practice. Seeing the ecosystem growth in the Middle East, would you also expect that in a couple of years, you would see more, I would say, SOC teams, research teams of big companies that want to invest in their own cybersecurity, hiring more people in the Middle East rather than, let's say, now Eastern Europe or India or you know, even Europe and, and um, uh, US? Two or three things. So uh, A, obviously it's happening, uh, you know, like UAE, Saudi, I know for a fact, I mean, especially in Saudi, I've seen like a lot of super talented people, a lot of trade researchers are there, who are there. I mean, two things it comes down to, right? One is human capital availability and the cost. In countries like sure. UAE uh, or Qatar, uh, the, the amount of low, citizen population is less. So you could attract talent from Ukraine or Far East to come and settle here and that creates a local human capital. But if you look at Saudi or you look at Egypt, they have a critical mass of human capital which could then be harnessed to create those threat researchers. Yep. Right? So chances of having local indigenous threat researchers would be higher in those countries who have that mm. level of human capital. From a cost perspective, then the question comes is somebody who's Saudi would understand the threats in Saudi better than anybody else probably. Mm -hmm. right? So, so Cost-wise, you will never be able to match India or used Europe. But if you were to say it, compare it with US, probably at the same cost or a little lower cost you could get. But people who have uh, local knowledge, I mean, there are some phenomenal talents who, who are there. So uh, absolutely, it's happening as we talk. 
you know, I, I, I had this interesting case like, you know, uh, like for example, Farsi speaking, right? Because you want to understand adversaries. And so uh, one of the company I knew had his researcher based out of Israel, right? Because the researcher's parents came from a Farsi background, right? And so he was able to speak. All you needed was somebody who spoke Farsi. It does not matter where he is, who understand the local nuances. And that's what, like, if you want to understand Saudi, you need somebody there. Faraz, thank you so much. Uh, I wish we had more time. It was fascinating. And thanks a lot for being here with us. And I'm happy that we got to meet you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine.